for them. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. And Lord, today we say thank You for, for moms. Thank You uh, for the investment of time and energy. Thank You for moms, Lord, who put out the, the tireless effort of work in, in raising children and and taking care of the home. Thank you for moms who teach us about Jesus and teach us how to, to live in this world. And Lord, we celebrate today the moms you have given us. But Lord, today can also be a day of challenge. It can be difficult because maybe we're missing mom who has passed in the previous months or even years. And today's a day we remember her and we're thankful, but at the same time our hearts are heavy. But Lord, sometimes our hearts can be heavy because uh, maybe mom is, is not involved in our lives, or, or maybe, uh, maybe there's been distance that has grown there. Father, we pray for those hearts that are hurting. Sometimes, Lord, our hearts are hurting because we desire, have a desire to be a mother. And, and Lord, I pray for, for the ladies in this room that it's a desire of their heart that's not been filled. And maybe today's a hard day as they think about motherhood and, and that desire. Lord, rather we're here, we're day, today celebrating, or rather today is a day of emotions, or today is a little bit of both. Uh, Father, we lay all that at your feet, and we pray for your hand to work in each and every life uh, here today on this Mother's Day. Father, we pray and ask that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word. God, we've been learning how to handle trials, how to handle difficult, uncertain times. And so, Father, today I pray that you would speak to us loud and clear. Lord, it is no accident we're here today. Uh, Lord, we truly believe each and every Sunday we come together as a church, we come together to worship and hear you the preaching of the Word. Father, we truly believe you draw us into this place to hear directly from you. And so, Lord, would you speak directly to every mind and every heart here today as we continue in our journey uh, through the second book of Second Corinthians. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You ever wonder, why is it that some people make it and have great success while others don't? I mean, two, two athletes, for example, of equal ability, accept a scholarship to a local college to play football. One goes on to a great career, and, and the other flounders and eventually drops out. Why does that happen? Why does one succeed and, and one fails? Or two entrepreneurs with, with similar equal assets to develop a business, one makes millions and the other one goes through bankruptcy. Why does one succeed and one fails. Or two young couples get married and, and, and they're, they're looking at marriage and one goes on and marry, stays married for 30 years and one goes through a divorce. Why does one succeed and, and one fail? There are a lot of contributing factors that determine what happens in people's lives. And, and I think probably one of the most important um, elements is the element of persistence. The element to keep pushing on even when things are tough. The people who really achieve stay with it longer. They, they don't quit easily. They're not immediate, uh, intimidated by obstacles. They see obstacles actually as opportunities. Over the course of time, they gain confidence bouncing back from a failure that, may, that has made them a little bit less now actually makes them stronger because they pick up their feet and they keep going. Paul Stoltz wrote a stimulating book called Adversity Quotent turning obstacles into opportunities. It had significant impact uh, in business industry and educational industries. Stoltz points out that for years, the predominant measure of success was somebody's IQ. They looked at their IQ quotient. But there are all kinds of examples of people who have high IQ and have failed. For example, 
Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Had a very high IQ, but he failed miserably at life. There is something more than IQ, and in Stoltz's book, he says there's AQ, which is adversity quotient. The people who can stand up against adversity and can overcome. Successful people have this one thing in common. He said they refuse to quit. They persevere. They have a very high AQ is what he was talking about. And according to Paul Stoltz, while you can't do much to improve your IQ, you're either super intelligent or you're not. Now, you can study some and get some good grades, but there are people who are rocket scientists and there are people like me who are not. And that's just going to happen. But he said, you can dramatically improve your AQ, your adversity quotient. You can enhance your ability to conquer adversity. However, I like what the Apostle Paul said better. See, we've been walking through the journey the last few weeks, going through 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5, and looking at what Paul said to the church at Corinth as he was guiding them, saying, listen, you're going to face some hard times, some uncertain times, some adversity. And so today, we're going to see what Paul says about how can we have kind of a strong adversity quotient. Verse 16 of chapter 4 is our key verse. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. But verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, Paul was saying, you must persevere. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And so we're going to look at this journey together. And I imagine, I suspect that I'm talking to some people in this room right now who are going through some very uncertain times. You're going maybe through some difficulties or some challenges. I suspect that I'm talking to somebody today who's struggling in an area of life and you're losing heart and you're about ready to give up and throw in the towel. And if that's not you, I do know that most of us in this room probably have a friend who is going through something that they're ready to give up the towel and they're looking at you saying, is there an answer to this? They're looking to us for some hope and for some direction to say, hey, you can make it through this. Right now, I want to ask you to close your eyes. I want to ask you to close your eyes. I want to ask you to pray right now and just clearly ask God in your own prayer, God, help me to hear from you. A simple prayer, God, help me to hear from you. God, help us to hear from you. Clear our minds. Amen. Pay close attention. As we go through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, kind of verse by verse, we're going to see four encouragements that's going to enhance our endurance and our confidence in uncertain times. Now, motivational speakers like Zig Ziglar or, or Norman Vincent Peale would love this section because it's an incentive to positive attitudes and turning obstacles and opportunities, and they would eat this up. They say, this is kind of section of Scripture that I love. And Paul starts out with first simply this, get back up when you've been knocked down. Get back up when you've been knocked down. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. The Apostle Paul amazes me because he was so resilient I mean, he bounced back from a lot of hard knocks in his life. Threatened him in Jerusalem. He flees to an Arabian desert where he spends a decade studying and preparing in obscurity. He resurfaces in Antioch to ready to do his ministry. They stone him. They leave him for dead outside of Lystra. And he gets back up and goes to Derby and wins a large number of disciples to the way of Christ. They throw him into prison in Philippi. And he converts the jailer. They take him to court, room in Caesarea, 
and he turns the witness stand into his pulpit, an opportunity to preach the message of Jesus. Shipwreck him, stand him and strand him on, a, on an island of Malta, and he wins the island chief politician to the Lord. Throw him in a Roman jail, and he emerges months later with much of the New Testament in his hand. He always got backed up when he was knocked down. Always rose back to his feet. In the book, Core Values, Everything You Need to Know I Learned in the Marines by Zell Miller, former senator and governor from Georgia, he tells about a high school senior who applied to three colleges only to be rejected all three times. Finally, when a fourth rejection letter came to him, he wrote to the admissions office and he said, Dear Sir, I am in receipt of your rejection and quite frankly, sir, that is over my limit. So I'm rejecting your rejection, and I will report to college on September the 18th. Now, I have no idea what happened. I'd like to know the rest of the story. I don't know how that turned out. But history is full of examples of people such as the Apostle Paul or Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Edison who succeeded because they rejected the rejection. They kept getting back up when they were knocked down. Teddy Roosevelt, he was rejected when he tried to join the army after the Spanish-American war broke out. They told him he was too old and he was too nearsighted, but he rejected the rejection, went out and organized a civilian militia, which he christened the Rough Riders. He went to Cuba and led the followers in a famous charge up San Juan Hill. The rest of President Teddy Roosevelt's story is history. When Albert Einstein was a graduate student, his doctoral dissertation was rejected by the University of Bern as too fanciful and irrelevant. Fortunately, he rejected the rejection and did not throw his theory of relativity into the wastebaskets. John Grisham, best-selling author, had his first novel, A Time to Kill, rejected more than a dozen times before publishers took a chance on him printing a few thousand copies. He rejected the rejection. Michael Jordan got cut by his junior high basketball team. I say he rejected the rejection. Colonel Saunders was broke at the age of 65 before he marketed his Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe. God got you here today because you need to hear a message that says, I need to reject the rejection. See, it's imperative that Christians have that same kind of spirit. Proverbs 24, 16 says, Sir, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. And it becomes increasingly unpopular to be an evangelical Christian today. And our society, to stand up and say you're a Christian, is going to get harder and harder to do. We're going to get knocked down, and we're going to get ridiculed, and we're going to get rejected. It's important that we have a resiliency to bounce back up. Some of you have stumbled and fallen in your Christian life. Some of you have stubbed your toe, some of you have broke a leg, some of you have fallen and cracked your head, so to speak. You've fallen back into old habits. At one time, I'm walking with Christ, and now I've gotten away from that. Some of you have, have, are, are going through struggling as parents and saying, man, I'm struggling as a parent, I don't know what to do. Some of you struggle in leadership, some of you struggle with integrity issues, and you're saying, I have fallen down. You're tempted to throw in a towel, towel of self-pity and self-will and quit. And Paul would stand here today and say, don't give up, get back up and let's go. I'll say it's not time to quit. Be inspired by Christian people who have turned obstacles and opportunities simply because they were tenacious. Joni Erickson Tata was paralyzed from the neck down in a swimming accident. 
But she turned that obstacle into a wonderful opportunity to witness her faith in Christ by writing and by music and by testimony. And now she travels the world and is a world-renowned speaker sharing her faith about how Jesus carries her through even though she is paralyzed. Dave Ramsey, many of you are familiar with him, has written books about finances and now teaches seminars across the country and has a financial training. He was bankrupt midway through his life. He rejected rejection and said, with God's help, I can turn this thing around. Frank Peretti was living in a trailer with no inside plumbing, making less than $15,000 a year when he wrote This Presence Darkness. Who's read that book? Been around for a while now. A Christian novel about the struggle between good and evil. That novel was rejected by 12 publishing companies. And finally, Good News Publishing said, oh, we'll let you publish your book somewhere between 10 and 15,000 copies. If you sell that many, that would be great. It has now sold over three and a half million copies. Frank Peretti was stuck, struck down, but not, but not destroyed. Francie Schwartz, in the book Chicken Soup for the Soul at Work, tells about a guy named Jerry who always, in a good mood, and always had something positive to say. If you asked, how are you, Jerry? He'd say, if I were any better, I'd be twins. Swartz wrote one day, I said to Jerry, I don't get it. You can't be possibly be positive up person all the time. How do you do it? Jerry replied, each morning I wake up and say to myself, Jerry, you have two choices. You can choose to be in a good mood or you can choose to be in a bad mood. I choose to be in a good mood. It's not that easy, I protested. Yes, it is, Jerry said. Life is all about choices. When you cut, all the, cut out all the junk, every situation is a choice. Several years ago, the restaurant Jerry, owner Jerry was robbed. The thieves panicked and shot him. Jerry recalled that day when I was lying on the floor. I remembered I had two choices. I could choose to live or I could choose to die. I chose to live. The paramedics were great. They kept saying I was going to be fine. But when they wheeled me in the emergency room and I saw the expressions of the faces of the doctors and nurses, I got really scared. In their eyes, I read, he's a dead man. I knew I needed to take action. There was a big burly nurse shouting questions at me. She asked, are you allergic to anything? Yes, I replied. The doctors and nurses stopped working as they waited for my response. Bullets! Over their laughter, I told them, I'm choosing to live. Operate on me as if I am alive and not dead. After 18 hours of surgery, weeks of intensive care, Jerry lived thanks to the skill of his doctors, but thanks many to the amazing Attitude and God's grace. Swartz said, I saw Jerry six months after the accident. I asked, how are you doing? He said, if I were any better, I'd be twins. He was struck down but not destroyed. See, we normally use the word but, B-U-T, to introduce a negative thought. Oh, it's a nice day, but it's probably going to rain a little bit later. I like the church service, but the music was a little too loud. I believe in God, but I don't understand how He can let this happen. See, the New Testament writers often use that word but to introduce a positive reality. The church was persecuted, but those who were scattered abroad preached the word. I love it. James was beheaded, but the word of God increased. They took the positive attitude. Peter was in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him, and so they went to their knees. In the world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Jesus says, I have overcome this world. 2 Corinthians 4, look at it again. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but 
not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, do not lose heart. Secondly, Paul goes on and tells us, love the Lord more than life itself. 2 Corinthians 4, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. What Paul was basically saying there is, listen, our sufferings remind us that Jesus suffered and died for us. So when you wake up and you have aches and pains or you're going through sickness or trial and your body is suffering, it reminds us that Jesus went through suffering. It goes on, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. See, the Apostle Paul considered himself expendable so that others would come to know Christ. And there's many examples of that, but Acts 19 tells about a preaching event created in revival where Paul's preaching was creating a revival in Ephesus that those who manufactured and sold souvenirs of the goddess Diana, they felt threatened. They felt so threatened, they stirred up a crowd, and the Scripture tells us that they rushed as one man to the theater. Acts 19 says Paul wanted to appear before that crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Now, when you first read that, you say the theater, our mind goes to theaters that we're used to. I started thinking about, okay, theater, the Cinemark Theater Mall. Why did a crowd run to the Cinemark Theater Mall? You know, I'm just not sure about that. But you start studying ancient theaters and ancient times and what was going on in those ancient cities. Those theaters were quite different. The theater in Ephesus was an outdoor amphitheater cut like a horseshoe in the mountainside of the edge of town, and it seated 25,000 people. It'd be like going down to Rupp Arena. With a mad crowd, and it says they, they marched as one man, meaning they kind of larked arms together, and they were angry about Christianity and what was going on, and this man Paul who's preaching because he's ruining our trade, and so they went together, and sometimes when a crowd gets going, other people start to just kind of jump into the crowd, and they kind of get going. They don't even know what they're marching for. They just know there's a bunch of angry people, and so they kind of, kind of jump into the crowd with them. Picture the scene. 20,000 plus people marching together. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're saying, your God is no good. Let's go to the amphitheater. Most people don't know what they're doing. Kind of like sometimes in our time right now with some of the riots we've seen, some people don't even know what they're doing and what they're standing for, what they're arguing for, what they're mad about. The Apostle Paul then steps out of the house. Where he was staying, he saw, sees all these people gather in one place. You know what he said? He said, get me out of here. I'm scared to death not what he said. He said, wow, what an opportunity. Look at that. There's thousands of people. I want to go preach. I want to go tell them about Jesus. And in Acts 19.31 says, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture to the theater. They're saying, Paul, you're crazy. You'll go down there. They'll tear you to shreds. But Paul was willing to face that hostile crowd because he loved the Lord more than his own life. If he could convince just one person just one to know the Messiah, it would be worth whatever the cost. Shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonment and even death. That's why he persevered. He never quit. He said, I'll keep going. He loved the Lord and he Lord in his cause more than life itself. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus matter more to you than life itself? Is there anything else more important? See, Paul was willing to die for that. 
And that's what Jesus called Paul to do as a disciple, and he calls us to do. He said in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for me will find it. Do you love the Lord so much that you'd be willing to give your life to advance the cause? That was Paul's mindset. If the government reported there's a high risk of terrorist attack at churches across the United States, would you be here next week? Or would you be like, man, I'm staying home? See, that's the question. See, most of us, though, are not called to be martyrs. I think here's the more relevant question. Is your devotion to Christ greater than your devotion to any single other thing in life? It's a good question to wrestle with. I mean, do you love the Lord more than the romantic relationships that you maybe are involved in? Or relationship. If you're involved in a relationship that you know is not right spiritually, it does not honor God, are you willing to sacrifice the relationship and say, it's got to be aligned with God? Do you love the Lord more than the comforts of your home state of Kentucky that if God is knocking on your shoulder and says, I want you to move across America and go do some kind of mission work, or even better than that, I want you to move to another country, to a different country, to a country that's even against the gospel, where you might lose your life, would you be willing to pack up and say, God, I'll leave it all for you? Let me get a little more personal with you. Do you love the Lord more than the pleasures of this life? Do you put His church and your relationship with Him above or behind the ball games that take place on Sunday? Above or behind the horse race industry. Above or behind the picnics. Above or behind golf matches and all the things that are involved and that crouch in when the Lord says we should gather on Sundays and not miss. Are there other things that come before that? See, He's an all-consuming passion. He should be for us. Should be our all-consuming passion. Or is He really just a weekend convenience that says, well, there's nothing else going on this weekend, honey, let's go to church. Or is it, no, my walk with God is so important, I've got to be at church and everything else line up behind it. You know, I hear more and more parents complaining. Rightfully so. The concern of what's happening in America today with sport activities on Sundays. It used to be, well, we had Wednesday night free because Wednesday night church, then we had Sunday morning, and then years ago, Wednesday was gone, done away with, and sports took that over and activities of, of Wednesday night, and now it's happening on Sunday, and I hear more and more parents saying, my goodness, I wish my ball team wouldn't do this. I wish they wouldn't do that. I'll tell you when it's going to stop. It will only stop when us parents stop going. And if you love the Lord enough, and you want your children to love the Lord, then you would say to your children, listen, we're not going to every single weekend tournament, every single weekend ball game, and every single weekend thing that's going on. You would say, we love the Lord too much. It would be a very sad testimony one day And you say, why are my children not walking with the Lord? And you look back and you say, well, we never really showed them how important it was. That's what Paul calls us to. Luke 16.10, Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. He wants to know, can I trust you with some of the simple things of life? See, if you're going to persevere in a Christian life, your allegiance to Christ must supersede everything else. It must supersede everything else, even the little daily things. If we love the Lord more than life itself, we won't lose heart. He goes on with another encouragement. and says, and believe what you say you believe. Verse 13, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. 
See, what he's saying is if you really believe in something, it will come out of your mouth. I know a lot of you love UK basketball because you can't stop talking about it. I know a lot of you love your children to death and think they are the absolute best thing ever walking this planet because you can't stop talking about it. If we love the Lord that much, we wouldn't stop talking about Him. Scripture goes on and says, With that same spirit of faith we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in His presence. See, the Apostle Paul believed certain spiritual theories were factual. They weren't just theories. He believed with all his heart that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah of God. Do you believe that? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah of God? He said he believed that. He believed that Jesus died an atoning death and was raised from the dead as proof that He was the Son of God. Do you believe that? My question is, do your actions really show it? See, because if we say we believe it verbally, we nod our head and say, yes, I believe it, then our actions should be following right behind and demonstrating it. And you've heard me use the illustration before. If I say and tell you I need to lose 30 pounds of weight, and I keep telling you I need to lose 30 pounds, I'm not doing anything, then do I really believe it? But when I say I really believe in Jesus and His death, His burial and resurrection, that He's Messiah and He's the Savior of the world, if I really believe that, I want to speak it. I want to give it to somebody else. Toward the end of his life, Paul wrote these words to a young man named Timothy. He said, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him for that day. See, Paul believed that his life had eternal purpose. It made a difference for eternity. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. He wanted it all to go towards glory of God. That belief that his life was helping him motivated him and kept him going, that he believed in it so much, I won't give up on my walk with Christ. See, that same belief keeps a lot of people going today. A school teacher that says, my patience is gone. I'm done with these children. I cannot teach anymore. I'm ready for retirement. I'm at the end of my rope. But then says, I must keep going because I have something to offer to these children. And that belief, they keep going for more years. A wife says, I've had it with my husband's neglect and his indifference. It's time I live for me. But in saner moments, she responds and says, I'm going to stick it through for the sake of my children and my family and my testimony. I won't give up. I will keep on going. A businessman may get discouraged because competitors lie and make more profit, and he's tempted to start cutting corners and tempt to give on principle, but he remembers his core beliefs and he holds on to them and says, I must keep going and keep honoring God. See, Christians need to be people who know what they believe and why they believe. Here's one of my concerns for the church in America today. My concern is this, is that we get too concerned about how things make me feel. And i got to go to church, and i got to come out of church having a really good feeling. If that's all it is, you're going to fade when the pressure's on. If your walk with God is all about a feeling, when life comes crashing in, you will surely crash. See, Christianity begins with facts to be believed, then there's a faith to be expressed, followed by feelings to be experienced, and we've got to keep them in that order. 
But we reverse things and say, well, if it makes me feel good, it must be right. Sometimes feelings are not right, or feelings will lead us in a wrong path. See, when the ambulance was rushing down the road, and I was traveling behind it in a car, and my dad was in that ambulance, and my mom was riding in the front seat of the ambulance, I did not feel good. There was nothing about me that felt good. I was scared. And when I was sitting at the emergency room at UK Hospital with my mom in a secluded room off to our side, waiting for the doctor to come back, and when the doctor came back to the room and said, we're sorry, your dad has passed from a massive heart attack, there was nothing that felt good in me. The only thing I had to hold on to is my belief that Jesus was still in control and God knew what he was doing. And it was about three years after that when I received a phone call from my mom that says, Brian, are you sitting down? I said, I'm not. I'm driving, but I can, you know, I'm sitting, but I'm driving down the road and I can pull over. She said, you might want to pull over for a second. And she said, the doctor just told me I have breast cancer. And after a long, deep breath, I said, Mom, well, how are you doing receiving that news? And she said, well, honestly, I'm Okay. Because either way, I win. She said, see, if this cancer takes my life, I'll go see your dad and I'll be with Jesus. And she said, if he keeps me here and heals me, then I have more work to do for him. The only way she could hold that belief is because of her belief in Jesus, and she knew her foundation was in Christ. See, when you hit hard times, you've got to know what you believe. It's one thing to say you believe when life is going smoothly. It's another thing to say you believe when your dad dies at the age of 68 from a massive heart attack, and a couple years later, your mom is told she has cancer. And Job understood that. All ten of his children were killed. His health broke. His wife ridiculed his faith. But even Job didn't understand the ways of God. Even though he didn't feel good, he reaffirmed his belief that God is still in control. When he says in verse uh, chapter 13, he says, even though he slay me, still I will trust in him. I mean, Job went as strong as, God, you're slaying me. And we've all asked those questions, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? And we have that wrestling, is this God? Is this Satan? What is going on? But Job said, I still put my trust in you, God. Do you believe what you say you believe and do your actions follow? See, when life gets uncertain, you better know what you believe because you won't feel very good when the news comes that is negative and destructive. When you come to church, and you're walking through, maybe the music feels hollow, the sermon seems shallow, the people seem distant, and you're just kind of floating through life trying to make it, you better know what you believe and who you're holding on to. And I hope your rock is solidly in Jesus Christ. Do you still hold on to your convictions? Do you say in the middle of trials, I still believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I still believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I still believe that God is going to reward those who are in Christ. I still believe that He is holy and fair and just. And even though He may slay me, I will trust in Him. Paul said, I believed, therefore I have spoken, and therefore I don't lose heart. There's one last encouragement. Paul says, keep your eye on the goal. Look at the text, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is unseen, but what, not what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, the reason Paul could persevere and stay focused 
is because he had an eternal mindset. He had a kingdom mindset. He had an eternal goal mindset saying, I'm thinking of the future. So he fixed his eyes on spiritual things. See, we know this. We know that everything we touch, our house, our home, our cars, our clothes, our children, our wives, we know these are all very temporary things. But sometimes they distract us so much from the goal to keep our eyes on heaven. Paul says, keep your eyes fixed there. See, to be persistent, Christians have to keep our eyes on the goal. Right now, it's NBA playoff time. We just went through March Madness. You ever watch when they're shooting a free throw? Guy lines up at the free throw line. It's only 15 feet. It's not a very far shot at all. They should be able to make those shots with their eyes closed. But what do they do? They open their eyes to keep their eye on the goal. And what's going on behind the basket? All this craziness of people are jumping and shouting and waving balloons and putting up big head posters. Some hold up scantily pictures of, of women. They're screaming, shouting, doing everything they can. And how do they do that? They keep their eye just on the goal to make the basket. See, our goal is to get to heaven. And, and, and I hope your goal is not only to get to heaven, but to take as many people as possible with you. I look forward to the day of heaven and be able to see people and say, Brian, I'm here because you ministered to me. I'm here because you shared the gospel to me. I'm here because you introduced me to Jesus. What a reunion that will be. But see, Satan will taunt us and try to distract us. And Paul even says that. Paul admits, he says, outwardly we're wasting away. Isn't that the truth? I mean, as you get older, and you don't have to get very old before you start realizing it, that some strange things start to happen to your body. Things don't work the same. Wrinkles start to, to come on. Pains last longer. You're not as flexible. Your belly that used to be firm is no longer firm. I mean, the six-pack is in there somewhere. It's just covered by the one-pack. I mean, just, it just all changes. You have hair growing in places you never knew you could have hair growing. I mean, life starts to change. There are things that happen to our body that are just out of our control that can be discouraging. How do we try to handle that? Many times we go through hair transplant and we put on makeup, wear looser clothes, even surgery, and all these things can be distracting and discouraging and cause us to lose confidence. And Paul urges us, keep your eye on the goal. Matter of fact, not only keep your eye on the goal, he's telling us one day you're going to have a new body. There will be no more death, there will be no more aging, there will be no more aches, no more pains, no more hair loss. Because he says, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Which means inwardly we're being shaped more and more like the heart of Christ. Satan will attempt to divert your attention with personal problems. Family stress, business demands, financial pressure. You say, I can't take it anymore. I just can't. Look at the, uh, the message in verse 16. says, these hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. I love that description. Because Paul says these troubles that seem so huge right now, when we get on the other side to eternity, we look back 5,000 or 10,000 years, they're going to be such a small dot on the beep of eternity. But we get so focused on now. He says, keep your eyes fixed on what is unseen. That keeps everything in perspective. We remember that we can endure all things through Christ who gives us strength. Missionaries Martin and Grace Burnham were being held hostage by Muslim extremists in Philippines. Martin Burnham was at the age of 42. He was shot and killed and attempted rescue effort. Also, a Christian nurse named Deborah Yap was killed and they gave their lives 
for the cause of Christ. You may remember the story several years ago. It was all over the news. Martin Burnham's wife, Grace, was wounded by gunfire, but she survived. And the Burnham's three children learned that their dad wasn't coming home. Martin's brother, Doug, said, this is shocking news, but God is giving us strength. Obviously, this didn't turn out the way we had hoped, but our faith is still the same. It has not changed. See, we're not promised that this life is going to turn out the way we want it to. There's no promise of that. But this world is not our home. This world is not our home. It's a temporary stopping place. We're, we're visitors. We're aliens of the Scriptures. We're aliens on this earth. I like the phrase in the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that reads, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. See, that's what Christ is to us. He's strength for today, but He's our bright hope for eternity. That's what Jesus Christ brings to our lives. Not exemption from life's hurts. If anybody tells you, you come to Christ and life is going to be all peachy, keen, and great, i got to tell you what their name is. Their name is a liar. That's not in Scripture. Matter of fact, many times when you come to Christ, sometimes things get a little bit more difficult for a while until you learn how to walk in Christ. But there is no promise of the Christian life being an easy life. Strength for today and hope for tomorrow is what Christ is. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We get back up when we fall down. We persevere because we believe that Jesus, that, that serving Jesus Christ matters more than life itself. We're confident that our present troubles are like small potatoes compared with the lavish celebration that is waiting for us. Heavenly Father, God, help us to hold on to these truths today. Help us to hold on to these truths, Lord, especially if we're here today and we're walking through some trials and challenges and we feel like it's time to throw in a towel. God, I pray that you would speak to us so loud and clear through this message if we're in that spot. Lord, help us have our eyes that are open to people around us, to friends, to family members, to neighbors, to co-workers who maybe they're walking through that kind of challenge and they need a word of hope to say, you need to hold on to Jesus. And when you hold on to Jesus, don't lose heart. He can help you get back up again. He can help you persevere. He can, he can help you be confident in, in the trouble and the trials you're going through now, but more importantly, to help our neighbors fix their eyes on Jesus for eternity. Father, we thank You for this song that we're going to sing together. You are strength for today and your bright hope for tomorrow. And because of that, we praise your great faithfulness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.